Chapter Fourteen of An Antarctic Mystery or The Sphinx of the Ice Fields. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne. Chapter Fourteen A Voice in a Dream entirely free from ice no it would have been premature to affirm this as a fact a few icebergs were visible in the distance while some drifts and packs were still going east nevertheless the break-up had been very thorough on that side and the sea was in reality open since a ship could sail freely god has come to our aid said captain len guy may he be pleased to guide us to the end in a week, I remarked, our schooner might come in sight of Salal Island. Provided that the east wind lasts, Mr. Jorling, don't forget that in sailing along the icebergs to their eastern extremity, the Halbrane went out of her course, and she must be brought back towards the west. The breeze is for us, Captain. And we shall profit by it, for my intention is to make for Bennet Islet. It was there that my brother first landed, and so soon as we shall have sighted that island, we shall be certain that we are on the right route. To-day, when I have ascertained our position exactly, we shall steer for Bennet Islet. Who knows but we may come upon some fresh sign? It is not impossible, Mr. Jorling. I need not say that recourse was had to the surest guide within our reach, that voracious narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, which I read and re-read with intense attention, fascinated as I was by the idea that I might be permitted to behold with my own eyes those strange phenomena of nature in the Antarctic world, which I, in common with all Edgar Poe's readers, had hitherto regarded as creations of the most imaginative writer, who ever gave voice by his pen to the fantasies of a unique brain. No doubt a great part of the wonders of Arthur Gordon Pym's narrative would prove pure fiction, but even if a little of the marvellous story were found to be true, how great a privilege would be mine! The picturesque and wonderful side of the story we were studying as gospel truth had little charm but the slightest interest for Captain Len Guy. He was indifferent to everything in Pym's narrative that did not relate directly to the castaways of Salal Island. His mind was solely and constantly set upon their rescue. According to the narrative of Arthur Pym, Jane experienced serious difficulties due to bad weather, from the 1st to the 4th of January, 1828. It was not until the morning of the 5th, in latitude 23 degrees, 15 minutes, that she found a free passage through the last iceberg that barred her way. The final difference between our position and the Jane in a parallel ease was that the Jane took fifteen days to accomplish the distance of ten degrees, or six hundred miles, which separated her on the 5th of January from Salal Island, while on the 19th of December the Halbrane was only about seven degrees, or four hundred miles, off the island. Bennet Islet, where Captain Guy intended to put in for twenty-four hours, was fifty miles nearer. Our voyage was progressing under prosperous conditions. We were no longer visited by sudden hail and snowstorms, or those rapid falls of temperature which tried the crew of the Jane so sorely. A few ice-floes drifted by us, occasionally peopled as tourists throng a pleasure yacht by penguins, and also by dusky seals, 
lying flat upon the white surfaces like enormous leeches. Above this strange flotilla we trace the incessant flight of petrels, pigeons, black puffins, divers, grebe, sterns, cormorants, and the sooty black albatross of the high latitudes. Huge medusas, exquisitely tinted, floated on the water like spread parasols. Among the denizens of the deep, captured by the crew of the schooner with line and net, I noted more particularly a sort of giant John Dory, Dorade, three feet in length, with firm and savoury flesh. During the night, or rather what ought to have been the night of the 19th to 20th, my sleep was disturbed by a strange dream. Yes, there could be no doubt that it was only a dream. Nevertheless, I think it well to record it here, because it is an additional testimony to the haunting influence under which my brain was beginning to labour. I was sleeping at two hours after midnight, and was awakened by a plaintive and continuous murmuring sound. I opened, or I imagined I opened my eyes. My cabin was in profound darkness. The murmur began again. I listened, and it seemed to me that a voice, a voice which I did not know, whispered these words. Pym, Pym, poor Pym. Evidently this could only be a delusion, unless indeed someone had got into my cabin. The door was locked. Pym, repeated the voice, poor Pym must never be forgotten. This time the words were spoken so close to my ear, and what was the meaning of the injunction, and why was it addressed to me? And besides, had not Pym, after his return to America, met with a sudden and deplorable death, the circumstances or the details being unknown? I began to doubt whether I was in my right mind, and shook myself into complete wakefulness, recognizing that I had been disturbed by an extremely vivid dream due to some cerebral cause. I turned out of my berth, and, pushing back the shutter, looked out of my cabin. No one aft on the deck except Hunt, who was at the helm. I had nothing to do but to lie down again, and this I did. It seemed to me that the name of Arthur Pym was repeated in my hearing several times. Nevertheless, I fell asleep and did not wake until morning, when I retained only a vague impression of this occurrence which soon faded away. No other incident at that period of our voyage calls for notice. Nothing particular occurred on board our schooner. The breeze from the north, which had forsaken us, did not recur, and only the current carried the halbrane towards the south. This caused a delay unbearable to our impatience. At last, on the 21st, the usual observations gave 82 degrees 50 minutes of latitude and forty-two degrees, twenty minutes of west longitude. Bennet Island, if it had any existence, could not be far off now. Yes, the islet did exist, and its bearings were those indicated by Arthur Pym. At six o'clock in the evening, one of the crew cried out that there was land ahead on the port side. End of chapter 14《ハッタクティックミステリー、オーダースフィンクスオブディアイスフィールド。こんにちは、ここで見られるようになりました。今日は、私たちのお話を聞いてください。今日は、私たちのお話を聞いてください。今日は、私たちのお話を聞いてください。今日は、私たちのお話を聞いてください。
Bennet Islet. The Halbrane was then within sight of Bennet Islet. The crew urgently needed rest, so the disembarkation was deferred until the following day, and I went back to my cabin. The night passed without disturbance, and when day came not a craft of any kind was visible on the waters, not a native on the beach. There were no huts upon the coast, no smoke arose in the distance to indicate that Bennet Islet was inhabited. But William Guy had not found any trace of human beings there, and what I saw of the islet answered to the description given by Arthur Pym. It rose upon a rocky base of about a league in circumference, and was so arid that no vegetation existed on its surface. "'Mr. Jorling,' said Captain Len Guy, "'do you observe a promontory in the direction of the northeast?' "'I observe it, Captain. "'Is it not formed of heaped-up rocks which look like giant bales of cotton?' "'That is so, and just what the narrative describes.' "'Then all we have to do is land on the promontory, Mr. Jorling. "'Who knows but we may come across some vestige of the crew of the Jane?' supposing them to have succeeded in escaping from Salal Island. The speaker was devouring the islet with his eyes. What must his thoughts, his desires, his impatience have been? But there was a man whose gaze was set upon the same point even more fixedly. That man was Hunt. Before we left the Halbrane, Len Guy enjoined the most minute and careful watchfulness upon his lieutenant. This was a charge which West did not need. Our exploration would take only half a day at most. If the boat had not returned in the afternoon, a second was to be sent in search of us. "'Look sharp also after our recruits,' added the captain. "'Don't be uneasy, captain,' replied the lieutenant. "'Indeed, since you want four men at the oars, you had better take them from among the new ones. That will leave four less troublesome fellows on board.' This was a good idea. For, under the deplorable influence of Hearn, the discontent of his shipmates from the Falklands was on the increase. The boat being ready, four of the new crew took their places forward, while Hunt, at his own request, was steersman. Captain Len Guy, the boatswain, and myself, all well armed, seated ourselves aft, and we started for the northern point of the islet. In the course of an hour we had doubled the promontory and come out in sight of a little bay whose shores the boats of the Jane had touched. Hunt steered for this bay, gliding with remarkable skill between the rocky points which struck up here and there. One would have thought he knew his way among them. We disembarked on a stony coast. The stones were covered with sparse lichen. The tide was already ebbing, leaving uncovered the sandy bottom of a sort of beach strewn with black blocks, resembling big nail-heads. Two men were left in charge of the boat while we landed amid the rocks, and, accompanied by the other two, Captain Len Guy, the boatswain, Hunt, and I, proceeded towards the centre, where we found some rising ground from whence we could see the whole extent of the islet. But there was nothing to be seen on any side, absolutely nothing. On coming down from the slight eminence, Hunt went on in front, as it had been agreed that he was to be our guide. We followed him, therefore, as he led us towards the southern extremity of the islet. Having reached the point, Hunt looked carefully on all sides of him, then stooped and showed us a piece of half-rotten wood lying among the scattered stones. "'I remember,' I exclaimed, "'Arthur Pym speaks of a piece of wood with traces of carving on it which appeared to have belonged to the bow of a ship.' 
Among the carving, my brother fancied he could trace the design of a tortoise, added Captain Len Guy. Just so, I replied, but Arthur Pym pronounced that resemblance doubtful. No matter, the piece of wood is still in the same place that is indicated in the narrative. So we may conclude that since the Jane cast anchor here, no other crew has set foot upon Bennet Islet. It follows that we should only lose time in looking out for any tokens of another landing. We shall know nothing until we reach Salal Island. Yes, Salal Island, replied the captain. We then retraced our steps in the direction of the bay. In various places we observed fragments of coral reef, and bouche de mer was so abundant that our schooner might have taken a full cargo of it. Hunt walked on in silence, with downcast eyes, until, as we were close enough upon the beach to the east, he, being about ten paces ahead, stopped abruptly, and summoned us to him by a hurried gesture. In an instant we were by his side. Hunt had evinced no surprise on the subject of the piece of wood first found, but his attitude changed when he knelt down in front of a worm-eaten plank lying on the sand. He felt it all over with his huge hands, as though he were seeking some tracery on its rough surface whose signification might be intelligible to him. The black paint was hidden under the thick dirt that had accumulated upon it. The plank had probably formed part of a ship's stern, as the boatswain requested us to observe. "'Yes, yes,' repeated Captain Lenguy. "'It made part of a stern.' Hunt, who still remained kneeling, nodded his big head in assent. "'But,' I remarked, "'this plank must have been cast upon Bennet Islet from a wreck. The cross-currents must have found it in the open sea, and—' "'If that were so,' cried the captain. The same thought had occurred to both of us. What was our surprise, indeed, our amazement, our unspeakable emotion, when Hunt showed us eight letters, cut in the plank, not painted, but hollow and distinctly traceable with the finger. It was only too easy to recognize the letters of two names arranged in two lines thus. A-N-L-I-E-P-O-L The Jane of the Liverpool the schooner commanded by Captain William Guy. What did it matter that time had blurred the other letters? Did not those suffice to tell the name of the ship and the port she belonged to, the Jane of the Liverpool? Captain Len Guy had taken the plank in his hands, and now he pressed his lips to it, while tears fell from his eyes. It was a fragment of the Jane. I did not utter a word until the captain's emotion had subsided. As for Hunt, I had never seen such a lightning glance from his brilliant hawk-like eyes as he now cast towards the southern horizon. Captain Len Guy rose. Hunt, without a word, placed the plank on his shoulder, and we continued our route. When we had made the tour of the island, we halted at the place where the boat had been left under the charge of two sailors, and about half-past two in the afternoon we were again on board. Early on in the morning of the 23rd of December, the Halbrane put off from Bennet Islet, and we carried away with us new and convincing testimony to the catastrophe which Salal Island had witnessed. During the day I observed the sea-water very attentively, and it seemed to me less deeply blue than Arthur Pym describes it. Nor had we met a single specimen of his monster of the austral fauna, 
an animal three feet long six inches high with four short legs long coral claws a silky body a rat's tail a cat's head the hanging ears blood-red lips and white teeth of a dog the truth is that i regarded several of these details as suspect and entirely due to an over-imaginative temperament seated far aft in the ship i read edgar poe's book with sedulous attention but i was not unaware of the fact that hunt whenever his duties furnished him with an opportunity observed me pertinaciously and with looks of singular meaning and in fact i was reperusing the end of chapter seventeen in which arthur pym acknowledged his responsibility for the sad and tragic events which were the result of his advice it was in fact he who over-persuaded captain william guy urging him to profit by so tempting an opportunity of solving the great problem relating to the antarctic continent and besides while accepting that responsibility did he not congratulate himself on having been the instrument of a great discovery and having aided in some degree to reveal to science one of the most marvellous secrets which had ever claimed its attention at six o'clock the sun disappeared behind a thick curtain of mist after midnight the breeze freshened and the halbrane's progress marked a dozen additional miles on the morrow the good ship was less than the third of a degree that is to say less than twenty miles from salal island unfortunately just after midday the wind fell nevertheless thanks to the current the island of salal was signalled at forty-five minutes past six in the evening the anchor was cast a watch was set with loaded firearms within hand reach and boarding nets ready the halbrane ran no risk of being surprised two eyes were watching on board especially those of hunt whose gaze never quitted the horizon of that southern zone for an instant End of chapter fifteen chapter sixteen of an antarctic mystery this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. an antarctic mystery by jules verne chapter sixteen salal island the night passed without alarm no boat had put off from the island nor had a native shown himself upon the beach the halbrane then had not been observed on her arrival this was all the better we had cast anchor in ten fathoms at three miles from the coast when the Jane appeared in these waters, the people of Salel beheld a ship for the first time, and they took it for an enormous animal, regarding its masts as limbs and its sails as garments. Now they ought to be better informed on this subject, and if they did not attempt to visit us, to what motive were we to assign such conduct? Captain Len Guy gave orders for the lowering of the ship's largest boat in a voice which betrayed his impatience the order was executed and the captain addressing west said send eight men down with martin holt sent hunt to the helm remain yourself at the moorings and keep a lookout landwards as well as to sea aye aye sir don't be uneasy we are going ashore and we shall try to gain the village of cluck cluck if any difficulty should arise on sea give us warning by firing three shots all right replied west at a minute's interval 
If we should not return before evening, send the second boat with ten armed men under the boatswain's orders, and let them station themselves within a cable's length of the shore, so as to escort us back, you understand? Perfectly, Captain. If we are not to be found, after you have done all in your power, you will take command of the schooner and bring her back to the Falklands. I will do so. The large boat was rapidly got ready. Eight men embarked in it, including Martin Holt and Hunt, all armed with rifles, pistols, and knives. The latter weapons were slung in their belts. They also carried cartridge pouches. I stepped forward and said, "'Will you not allow me to accompany you, Captain?' "'If you wish to do so, Mr. Jorling.' I went to my cabin, took my gun, a repeating rifle with ball and powder, and rejoined Captain Len Guy, who had kept a place in the stern of the boat for me. Our object was to discover the passage through which Arthur Pym and Dirk Peters had crossed the reef on the 19th of January, 1828, in the Jane's boat. For twenty minutes we rowed along the reef, and then Hunt discovered the pass, which was through a narrow cut in the rocks. Leaving two men in the boat, we landed, and having gone through the winding gorge which gave access to the crest of the coast, our little force, headed by Hunt, pushed on towards the centre of the island. Captain Len Guy and myself exchanged observations as we walked, on the subject of this country, which, as Arthur Pym declared, differed essentially from every other land hitherto visited by human beings. We soon found that Pym's description was trustworthy. The general colour of the plains was black, as though the clay were made of lava dust. Nowhere was anything white to be seen. At a hundred paces distance, Hunt began to run towards an enormous mass of rock, climbed on it with great agility, and looked out over a wide extent of space, like a man who ought to recognize the place he is in, but does not. "'What is the matter with him?' asked Captain Len Guy, who was observing Hunt attentively. "'I don't know what is the matter with him, Captain, but, as you are aware, everything about this man is odd. His ways are inexplicable.' and on certain sides of him he seems to belong to those strange beings whom Arthur Pym asserts that he found on this island. One would even say that. That, repeated the captain. And then, without finishing my sentence, I said, Captain, are you sure you made a good observation when you took the altitude yesterday? Certainly. So that your point gave eighty-three degrees twenty minutes of latitude, and forty-three degrees, five minutes of longitude. Exactly? Exactly. There is, then, no doubt that we are on Salel Island? None, Mr. Jorling, if Salel Island lies where Arthur Pym places it. This was quite true. There could be no doubt on the point, and yet of all that Arthur Pym described, nothing existed, or rather nothing was any longer to be seen. Not a tree, not a shrub, not a plant was visible in the landscape. There was no sign of the wooded hills between which the village of Clock Clock ought to lie, or of the streams from which the crew of the Jane had not ventured to drink. There was no water anywhere, but everywhere absolute, awful drought. Nevertheless, Hunt walked on rapidly, without showing any hesitation. It seems as though he was led by a natural instinct, a bee's flight, as we say in America. I know not what presentiment induced us to follow him as the best of guides, a Chingachgook, a Renard Subtil, and why not? 
Was not he the fellow-countryman of Fenimore Cooper's heroes? But I must repeat that we had not before our eyes that fabulous land which Arthur Pym described. The soil we were treading had been ravaged, wrecked, torn by convulsion. It was black, a cindery black, as though it had been vomited from the earth under the action of Plutonian forces. It suggested that some appalling and irresistible cataclysm had overturned the whole of its surface. Not one of the animals mentioned in the narrative was to be seen, and even the penguins which abound in the Antarctic regions had fled from this uninhabitable land. Its stern silence and solitude made it a hideous desert. No human being was to be seen either on the coast or in the interior. Did any chance of finding William Guy and the survivors of the Jane exist in the midst of this scene of desolation? I looked at Captain Len Guy. His pale face, dim eyes, and knit brow told too plainly that hope was beginning to die within his breast. And then the population of Salal Island, the almost naked men, armed with clubs and lances, the tall, well-made, upstanding women, endowed with grace and freedom of bearing, not to be found in a civilized society. Those are the expressions of Arthur Pym, and the crowd of children accompanying them. What had become of all these? Where were the multitude of natives with black skins, black hair, black teeth, who regarded white color with deadly terror? All of a sudden a light flashed upon me. An earthquake! I exclaimed. Yes, two or three of those terrible shocks, so common in these regions, where the sea penetrates by infiltration, and a day comes when the quantity of accumulated vapor makes its way out and destroys everything on the surface. "'Could an earthquake have changed Salal Island to such an extent?' asked Len Guy, musingly. "'Yes, Captain, an earthquake has done this thing. It has destroyed every trace of all that Arthur Pym saw here.' Hunt, who had drawn nigh to us, and was listening, nodded his head in approval of my words. "'Are these not countries of the southern seas volcanic?' I resumed. "'If the Halbrane were to transport us to Victoria Island,' we might find the Erebus and the terror in the midst of an eruption. And yet, observed Martin Holt, if there had been an eruption here, we should find lava beds. I did not say there has been an eruption, I replied, but I do say the soil has been convulsed by an earthquake. On reflection it will be seen that the explanation given by me deserved to be admitted. And then it came to my remembrance that according to Arthur Pym's narrative, Salel belonged to a group of islands which extended towards the west. Unless the people of Salel had been destroyed, it was possible that they might have fled into one of the neighboring islands. We should do well, then, to go and reconnoitre that archipelago, for Salel clearly had no resources whatever to offer after the cataclysm. I spoke of this to the captain. Yes, he replied, and tears stood in his eyes. Yes, it may be so. And yet, how could my brother and his unfortunate companions have found the means of escaping? Is it not far more probable that they all perished in the earthquake? Here Hunt made us a signal to follow him, and we did so. After he had pushed across the valley, for a considerable distance he stopped. What a spectacle was before our eyes! There, lying in heaps, were human bones— all the fragments of that framework of humanity which we call the skeleton, 
hundreds of them, without a particle of flesh, clusters of skulls, still bearing some tufts of hair, a vast bone-heap, dried and whitened in this place. We were struck dumb and motionless by this spectacle. When Captain Len Guy could speak, he murmured, "'My brother, my poor brother!' On a little reflection, however, my mind refused to admit certain things. How was this catastrophe to be reconciled with Patterson's memoranda? The entries in his notebook stated explicitly that the mate of the Jane had left his companions on Sellal Island seven months previously. They could not have perished in this earthquake, for the state of the bones proved that it had taken place several years earlier, and must have occurred after the departure of Arthur Pym and Dirk Peters since no mention of it was made in the narrative of the former these facts then were irreconcilable if the earthquake was of recent date the presence of those time-bleached skeletons could not be attributed to its action in any case the survivors of the jane were not among them but then where were they the valley of clock clock extended no further we had to retrace our steps in order to regain the coast we had hardly gone half a mile on the cliff's edge, when Hunt again stopped, on perceiving some fragments of bone which were turning to dust, and did not seem to be those of a human being. Were these the remains of one of the strange animals described by Arthur Pym, of which we had not hitherto seen any specimens? Hunt suddenly uttered a cry, or rather a sort of savage growl, and held out his enormous hand holding a metal collar. Yes, a brass collar, a collar eaten by rust, but bearing letters which might still be deciphered. These letters form the three following words. Tiger, Arthur Pym. Tiger, the name of the dog which had saved Arthur Pym's life and the hold of the Grampus, and, during the revolt of the crew, had sprung at the throat of Jones the sailor, and who was immediately finished by Dirk Peters. So, then, that faithful animal had not perished in the shipwreck of the Grampus. He had been taken on board the Jane, at the same time as Arthur Pym and the half-breed. And yet the narrative did not allude to this. And after the meeting with the schooner, there was no longer any mention of the dog. All these contradictions occurred to me. I could not reconcile the facts. Nevertheless, there could be no doubt that Tiger had been saved from the shipwreck like Arthur Pym, had escaped the landslip of the Clock-Clock Hill, and had come to his death at last in the catastrophe which had destroyed a portion of the population of Salel. But again William Guy and his five sailors could not be among those skeletons which were strewn upon the earth, since they were living at the time of Patterson's departure seven months ago and the catastrophe already dated several years back. Three hours later we had returned on board the Halbrane, without having made any other discovery. Captain Len Guy went direct to his cabin, shut himself up there, and did not reappear even at dinner hour. The following day, as I wished to return to the island in order to resume its exploration, from one coast to the other, I requested West to have me rowed ashore. He consented, after he had been authorized by Captain Len Guy, who did not come out with us. Hunt, the boatswain, Martin Holt, four men, and myself took our places in the boat without arms, for there was no longer anything to fear. We disembarked at our yesterday's landing-place, 
and Hunt again led the way towards the hill of Klock-Klock. Nothing remained of the eminence that had been carried away in the artificial landslip, from which the captain of the Jane, Patterson, his second officer, and five of his men had happily escaped. The village of Klock-Klock had thus disappeared, and doubtless the mystery of the strange discoveries narrated in Arthur Poe's work was now and ever would remain beyond solution. We had only to regain our ship, returning by the east side of the coast. Hunt brought us through the space where the sheds had been erected for the preparation of the beche de mer, and we saw the remains of them. On all sides, silence and abandonment reigned. We made a brief pause at the place where Arthur Pym and Dirk Peter seized upon the boat, which bore them towards higher latitudes, even to that horizon of dark vapour whose rents permitted them to discern the huge human figure, the white giant. Hunt stood with crossed arms, his eyes devouring the vast extent of the sea. "'Well, Hunt,' said I tentatively. Hunt did not appear to hear me. He did not turn his head in my direction. "'What are we doing here?' I asked him, and touched him on the shoulder. He started and cast a glance upon me, which went to my heart. "'Come along, Hunt,' cried Hurley-Curley. "'Are you going to take root on this rock? "'Don't you see the Halbrane waiting for us at her moorings? "'Come along. "'We shall be off to-morrow. "'There is nothing more to do here.' It seemed to me that Hunt's trembling lips repeated the word nothing, while his whole bearing protested against what the boatswain said. The boat brought us back to the ship. Captain Len Guy had not left his cabin. West having received no orders, was pacing the deck aft. I seated myself at the foot of the mainmast, observing the sea which lay open and free before us. At this moment the captain came on deck. He was very pale, and his features looked pinched and weary. "'Mr. Jorling,' said he, "'I can affirm conscientiously that I have done all it was possible to do. Can I hope, henceforth, that my brother William and his companions—' No, no, we must go away before winter. He drew himself up and cast a last glance towards Sullil Island. Tomorrow, Jim, he said to West, tomorrow we will make sail as early as possible. At this moment a rough voice uttered the words, And Pym, poor Pym. I recognized this voice. It was the voice I had heard in my dream. End of chapter 16
some wonderful revelation a movement of west's hand sent the men forward leaving only the mate the boatswain martin holt the sailing-master and hardy with the captain and myself in the vicinity of hunt the captain approached and addressed him what did you say i said and pym poor pym well then what do you mean by repeating the name of the man whose pernicious advice led my brother to the island on which the jane was lost the greater part of her crew was massacred and where we have not found even one left of those who were still here seven months ago hunt did not speak answer i say answer cried the captain hunt hesitated not because he did not know what to say but from a certain difficulty in expressing his ideas the latter were quite clear but his speech was confused his words were unconnected he had a certain language of his own which sometimes was picturesque and pronunciation was strongly marked by the hoarse accent of the indians of the far west you see he said i do not know how to tell things my tongue stops understand me i spoke of pym poor pym did i not yes answered west sternly and what have you to say about arthur pym i have to say that he must not be abandoned abandoned i exclaimed no never it would be cruel too cruel we must go to seek him to seek him repeated captain len guy understand me it is for this that i have embarked on the halbrane yes to find poor pym and where is he i asked if not in a deep grave in the cemetery of his natal city no he is in a place where he remained alone all alone continued hunt pointing towards the south and since then the sun has risen on that horizon seven times it was evident that hunt intended to designate the antarctic regions but what did he mean by this do you not know that arthur pym is dead said the captain dead replied hunt emphasizing the word with an expressive gesture no listen to me i know things understand me he is not dead come now hunt said i remember what you do know in the last chapter of the adventures of arthur pym does not edgar poe relate his sudden and deplorable end explain yourself hunt said the captain in a tone of command reflect take your time and say plainly whatever you have to say and while hunt passed his hand over his brow as though to collect his memory of far-off things, I observed to Captain Len Guy, There is something very singular in the intervention of this man, if indeed he be not mad. At my words the boatswain shook his head, for he did not believe Hunt to be in his right mind. The latter understood this shake of the boatswain's head, and cried out in a harsh tone, No, not mad, and madmen are respected on the prairies, even if they are not believed, and I— I must be believed. No, 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 Pym is not dead. Edgar Poe asserts that he is, I replied. Yes, I know, Edgar Poe of Baltimore, but he never saw poor Pym, never, never. What? exclaimed Captain Lenguy. The two men were not acquainted? No. And it was not Arthur Pym himself who related his adventures to Poe? No, Captain, no. He below there, at Baltimore, had only the notes written by Pym from the day when he hid himself on board the Grampus, to the very last hour, the last. Understand me, the last. Who, then, brought back the journal? 
asked Captain Len Guy, as he seized Hunt's hand. It was Pym's companion, he who loved him, his poor Pym, like a son. It was Dirk Peters, the half-breed, who came back alone from there, beyond. The half-breed Dirk Peters? I exclaimed. Yes. Alone? Alone. And Arthur Pym may be. There, answered Hunt, in a loud voice, bending towards the southern line, from which he had not diverted his gaze for a moment. Could such an assertion prevail against the general incredulity? No, assuredly not. Martin Holt nudged Hurligurly with his elbow, and both regarded Hunt with pity, while West observed him without speaking. Captain Len Guy made me a sign, meaning that nothing serious was to be got of this poor fellow, whose mental faculties must have been out of gear for a long time. And nevertheless, when I looked keenly at Hunt, it seemed to me that a sort of radiance of truth shone out of his eyes. Then I set to work to interrogate the man, putting him to precise and pressing questions, which he tried to answer categorically, as we shall see, and not once did he contradict himself. "'Tell me,' I asked, "'did Arthur Pym really come to Salal Island on board the Grampus?' "'Yes.' Did Arthur Pym separate himself with the half-breed and one of the sailors from his companions while Captain William Guy had gone to the village of Clock Clock? Yes, the sailor was one Allen, and he was almost immediately stifled under the stones. Then the two others saw the attack and the destruction of the schooner from the top of the hill? Yes. Then, some time later, the two left the island, after they had got possession of one of the boats which the natives could not take from them? Yes. And after twenty days, having reached the front of the curtain of vapour, they were both carried down into the gulf of the cataract. This time Hunt did not reply in the affirmative. He hesitated. He stammered out some vague words. He seemed to be trying to rekindle the half-extinguished flame of his memory. At length, looking at me and shaking his head, he answered, No, not both. Understand me. Dirk never told me. "'Dirk Peters,' interposed Captain Len Guy quickly. "'You knew Dirk Peters?' "'Yes.' "'Where?' "'At Vandalia, State of Illinois.' "'And it is from him that you have all this information concerning the voyage?' "'From him.' "'And he came back alone, alone from that voyage, having left Arthur Pym?' "'Alone.' "'Speak, man, do speak!' I cried impatiently. Then, in broken but intelligible sentence, Hunt spoke. "'Yes, there—' A curtain of vapour, so the half-breed often said, understand me. The two, Arthur Pym and he, were in Salal boat. Then an enormous block of ice came full upon them, and at the shock Dirk Peters was thrown into the sea, but he clung to the ice-block, and understand me, he saw the boat drift with the current, far, very far, too far. In vain did Pym try to rejoin his companion, he could not. The boat drifted on and on and Pym, that poor dear Pym, was carried away. It is he who has never come back, and he is there, still there. If Hunt had been the half-breed in person, he could not have spoken with more heartfelt emotion of poor Pym. It was then, in front of the curtain of vapour, that Arthur Pym and the half-breed had been separated from each other. Dirk Peters had succeeded in returning from the ice-world to America, whither he conveyed the notes that were communicated to Edgar Poe. Hunt was minutely questioned upon all these points, and he replied, conformably, 
he declared, to what the half-breed had told him many times. According to this statement, Dirk Peters had Arthur Pym's notebook in his pocket at the moment when the ice-block struck them, and thus the journal which the half-breed placed at the disposal of the American romance writer was saved. "'Understand me,' Hunt repeated, "'for I tell you things, as I have them from Dirk Peters. While the drift was carrying him away, he cried out with all his strength. Pym, poor Pym, had already disappeared in the midst of the vapour. The half-breed, feeding upon raw fish, which he contrived to catch, was carried back by a cross-current to Salal Island, where he landed, half-dead from hunger. "'To Salal Island!' exclaimed Captain Len Guy. "'And how long was it since they had left it?' Three weeks, yes, three weeks at the furthest, so Dirk Peters told me. "'Then he must have found all that remained of the crew of the Jane, "'my brother William, and those who had survived with him?' "'No,' replied Hunt, "'and Dirk Peters always believed that they had perished. "'Yes, to the very last man. "'There was no one upon the island.' "'No one? Not a living soul. "'But the population? No one. "'No one, I tell you. "'The island was a desert. Yes, a desert.' This statement contradicted certain facts of which we were absolutely certain. After all, though, when Dirk Peters returned to Salal Island, the population, seized by who can tell what terror, had already taken refuge upon the southwestern group, and that William Guy and his companions were still hidden in the gorges of Klock Klock. That would explain why Halfbreed had not come across them, and also why survivors of the Jane had nothing to fear during eleven years of their sojourn on the island. On the other hand, since Patterson had left them there seven previously, if we did not find them, that must have been because they had been obliged to leave Salal Island, it being rendered uninhabitable by the earthquake. So that, resumed Captain Len Guy, on the return of Dirk Peters, there is no longer an inhabitant on the island? Not one, repeated Hunt. Not one. The half-breed did not meet a single native. And what did Dirk Peters do? Understand me. A forsaken boat lay there at the back of the bay, contained some dried meat and several casks of water. The half-breed got into it, and a south wind, yes, south, very strong, the same that had driven the ice-block with the cross-current towards Salal Island, carried him on for weeks and weeks to the ice-barrier, through a passage in it, you may believe me, I'm telling you only what Dirk Peters told me, and he cleared the polar circle. And beyond it, I inquired, beyond it, he was picked up by an American whaler, the Sandy Hook, and taken back to America. Now one thing at all events was clear. Edgar Poe had never known Arthur Pym. This was the reason why, to leave his readers in exciting uncertainty, he had brought Pym to an end, as sudden as it was deplorable, without indicating the manner or the cause of his death. And yet, although Arthur Pym did not return, could it be reasonably admitted that he had survived his companion for any length of time, that he was still living, eleven years having elapsed since his disappearance? Yes, yes, replied Hunt. And this he affirmed with the strong conviction that Dirk Peters had infused into his mind while the two were living together in Vandalia, in Illinois. Now the question arose, was Hunt sane? Was it not he who had stolen into my cabin, 
in a fit of insanity of this i had no doubt and murmured in my ear the words and pym poor pym yes and i had not been dreaming in short if all that hunt had said was true if he was but the faithful reporter of secrets which had been entrusted to him by dirk peters ought he to be believed when he repeated in a tone of mingled command and entreaty pym is not dead pym is there poor pym must not be forsaken when i had made an end of questioning hunt captain len guy came out of his meditative mood profoundly troubled and gave the word all hands forward when the men were assembled around him he said listen to me hunt and seriously consider the gravity of the questions i am about to put to you hunt held his head up and ran his eyes over the crew of the halbrane you assert hunt that all you have told us concerning arthur pym is true yes you knew dirk peters yes you lived some years with him in illinois nine years and he often related these things to you yes and for your own part you have no doubt that he told you the exact truth none well then did it ever occur to him that some of the crew of the jane might have remained on Salel island no he believed that captain william guy and his companions must all have perished in the landslip of the hill of clock yes and from what he often repeated to me pym believed it also where did you see dirk peters for the last time at vandalia how long ago over two years and which of you two was the first to leave vandalia i thought i detected a slight hesitation in hunt before he answered we left the place together you to go to the falklands and he he replied hunt and then his wandering gaze fixed itself on martin holt our sailing-master whose life he had saved at the risk of his own during the tempest well resumed the captain do you not understand what i am asking you yes then answer me when dirk peters left illinois did he finally give up america yes to go whither speak to the falklands and where is he now he stands before you dirk peters hunt was the half-breed dirk peters the devoted companion of arthur pym he who captain guy had so long sought for in the united states and whose presence was probably to furnish us with a fresh reason for pursuing our daring campaign i shall not at all be surprised if my readers have already recognized dirk peters and hunt indeed i shall be astonished if they had failed to do so the extraordinary thing is that captain len guy and myself who had read edgar poe's book over and over again did not see at once when hunt came on the ship at the falklands that he and the half-breed were identical i can only admit that we were both blindfolded by some hidden action of fate just when certain pages of that book ought to have effectually cleared our vision there was no doubt whatever that hunt really was dirk peters although he was eleven years older he answered in every particular to the description of him given by arthur pym except that he was no longer of fierce aspect in fact the half-breed had changed with age and the experience of terrible scenes through which he had passed nevertheless he was still the faithful companion to whom arthur pym had often owed his safety 
that same Dirk Peters who loved him as his own son, and who had never, no never, lost the hope of finding him again one day amid the awful Antarctic wastes. Now why had Dirk Peters hidden himself in the Falklands under the name of Hunt? Why, since his embarkation on the Halbrane, had he kept up that incognito? Why had he not told who he was, since he was aware of the intentions of the captain, who was about to make every effort to save his countrymen by following the course of the Jane? Why, no doubt because he feared that his name would inspire horror. Was it not the name of one who had shared in the horrible scenes of the Grampus, who had killed Parker, the sailor who had fed upon the man's flesh, and quenched his thirst in the man's blood? To induce him to reveal his name, he must be assured that the Halbrane would attempt to discover and rescue Arthur Pym. And as to the existence of Arthur Pym, I confess that my reason did not rebel against the admission of it as a possibility. The imploring cry of the half-breed, Pym, poor Pym, he must not be forsaken, troubled me profoundly. Assuredly, since I had resolved to take part in the expedition of the Halbrane, I was no longer the same man. A long silence had followed the astounding declaration of the half-breed. None dreamed of doubting his veracity. He had said, I am Dirk Peters. He was Dirk Peters. End of chapter 17, part 1「Chapter seventeen part two of an Antarctic mystery or the Sphinx of the Icefields. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter seventeen part two and Pym. At length, moved by irresistible impulse, I said, my friends, before any decision is made, let us carefully consider the situation. Should we not lay up everlasting regret for ourselves if we were to abandon our expedition at the very moment when it promises to succeed? Reflect upon this, Captain, and you, my companions. It is less than seven months since Patterson left your countrymen alive on Salel Island. If they were there then, the fact proves that for eleven years they have been enabled to exist on the resources provided by the island, having nothing to fear from the islanders, some of whom had fallen victim to circumstances unknown to us, and others had probably transferred themselves to some neighboring island. This is quite plain, and I do not see how any objection can be raised to my reasoning. No one made answer. There was none to be made. If we have not come across the captain of the Jane and his people— I resumed. It is because they have been obliged to abandon Selal Island since Patterson's departure. Why, in my belief, it was because the earthquake had rendered the island uninhabitable. Now they would only have required a native boat to gain either another island or some point of the Antarctic continent by the aid of the southern current. I hardly hesitate to assert that all this has occurred. But, in any case, I know, and I repeat, that we shall have done nothing if we do not persevere in the search on which the safety of your countrymen depends. I questioned my audience by a searching look. No answer. Captain Len Guy, whose emotion was unrestrained, 
bowed his head, for he felt that I was right, that by invoking the duties of humanity I was prescribing the only course open to men with feeling hearts. "'And what is in question?' I continued, after the silent pause, "'to accomplish a few degrees of latitude, and that while the sea is open, while we have two months of good weather to look for, and nothing to fear from the southern winter.' i certainly should not ask you to brave its severity and shall we hesitate when the halbrane is abundantly furnished her crew complete and in good health shall we take fright at imaginary dangers shall we not have courage to go on on thither and i pointed to the southern horizon dirk peters pointed to it also with an imperative gesture which spoke for him still the eyes of all were fixed upon us but there was no response i continued to urge every argument and to quote every example in favour of the safety of pursuing our voyage but the silence was unbroken and now the men stood with eyes cast down and yet i had not once pronounced the name of dirk peters nor alluded to dirk peters proposal i was asking myself whether i had or had not succeeded in inspiring my companions with my own belief, when Captain Len Guy spoke. "'Dirk Peters,' he said, "'do you assert that Arthur Pym and you, after your departure from Salal Island, saw land in the direction of the south?' "'Yes, land,' answered the half-breed. "'Islands or continents, understand me, and I believe that Pym, poor Pym, is waiting there until aid comes to him. There, where perhaps William Guy and his companions are also waiting,' said I, to bring back the discussion to more practical points. Captain Len Guy reflected for a little while, and then spoke. "'Is it true, Dirk Peters,' he asked, "'that beyond the eighty-fourth parallel the horizon is shut in by that curtain of vapour which is described in the narrative? Have you seen, seen with your own eyes, those cataracts in the air, that gulf in which Arthur Pym's boat was lost?' The half-breed looked from one to the other of us, and shook his big head. "'I don't know,' he said. "'What are you asking me about, Captain? A curtain of vapour? Yes, perhaps, and also appearances of land towards the south.' Evidently Dirk Peters had never read Edgar Poe's book, and very likely did not know how to read. After having handed over Pym's journal, he had not troubled himself about its publication. Having retired to Illinois at first, and to the Falklands afterwards, he had no notion of the stir that the work had made, or of the fantastic and baseline climax to which our great poet had brought those strange adventurers. And besides, might not Arthur Pym himself, with his tendency to the supernatural, have fancied that he saw these wondrous things, due solely to his imaginative brain? Then, for the first time, in the course of this discussion, West's voice made itself heard, I had no idea which side he would take. The first words he uttered were, "'Captain, your orders?' Captain Len Guy turned towards his crew, who surrounded him, both the old and the new. Hearn remained in the background, ready to intervene, if he should think it necessary. The captain questioned the boatswain and his comrades, whose devotion was unreservedly his, by a long and anxious look and I heard him mutter between his teeth, "'Ah, if it depended only on me, if I were sure of the ascent and the help of them all!' Then Hearn spoke roughly. 
Captain, said he, it is two months since we left the Falklands. Now my companions were engaged for a voyage which was not to take them further beyond the icebergs than Salal Island. That is not so, exclaimed Captain Len Guy. No, that is not so. I recruited you all for an enterprise which I have a right to pursue, so far as I please. Beg pardon, said Hearn coolly, but we have come to a point which no navigator has ever yet reached, in a sea no ship except the Jane has ever ventured into before us and therefore my comrades and I mean to return to the Falklands before the bad season. From there you can return to Salal Island, and even go on to the Pole if you so please. A murmur of approbation greeted his words. No doubt the sealing-master justly interpreted the sentiments of the majority, composed of the new recruits. To go against their opinion, to exact the obedience of these ill-disposed men, and under such conditions, to risk the unknown Antarctic waters would have been an act of temerity, or rather an act of madness, that would have brought about some catastrophe. Nevertheless, West, advancing upon Hearn, said to him in a threatening tone, Who gave you leave to speak? The captain questioned us, replied Hearn. I had a right to reply. The man uttered these words with such insolence that West, who was generally so self-restrained, was about to give free vent to his wrath, when Captain Len Guy, stopping him by a motion of his hand, said quietly, "'Be calm, Jem. Nothing can be done unless we are all agreed. What is your opinion, Hurley-Gurley?' "'It is very clear, Captain,' replied the boatswain. "'I will obey your orders, whatever they may be. It is our duty not to forsake William Guy and the others.' so long as any chance of saving them remains. The boatswain paused for a moment, while several of the sailors gave unequivocal signs of approbation. As for what concerns Arthur Pym? There is no question of Arthur Pym, struck in the captain, but only of my brother William and his companions. I saw at this moment that Dirk Peters was about to protest, and caught hold of his arm. He shook with anger, but kept silence. The captain continued his questioning of the men, desiring to know by name all those upon whom he might reckon. The old crew, to a man, acquiesced in his proposals, and pledged themselves to obey his orders implicitly, and follow him whithersoever he chose to go. Three only of the recruits joined those faithful seamen. These were English sailors. The others were of Hearn's opinion holding that for them the campaign was ended at Salal Island. They therefore refused to go beyond that point, and formally demanded that the ship should be steered northward, so as to clear the icebergs at the most favourable period of the season. Twenty men were on their side, and to constrain them to lend a hand to the working of the ship if she were to be diverted to the south, would have been to provoke them to rebel. There was but one resource— to arouse their covetousness, to strike the chord of self-interest. I intervened, therefore, and addressed them in a way which placed the seriousness of my proposal beyond a doubt. Men of the Halbrane listened to me, just as various states have done for voyages of discovery in the polar regions, I offer a reward to the crew of this schooner. Two thousand dollars shall be shared among you for every degree we make beyond the eighty-fourth parallel nearly seventy dollars to each man, 
This was a strong temptation. I felt that I had hit the mark. I will sign an agreement to that effect, I continued, with Captain Len Guy as your representative, and the sums gained shall be handed to you on your return, no matter under what conditions that return be accomplished. I waited for the effect of this promise, and, to tell the truth, I had not long to wait. Hurrah! cried the boatswain, acting as fugleman to his comrades, who almost unanimously added their cheers to his. Hearn offered no further opposition. It would always be in his power to put in his word when the stances should be more propitious. Thus the bargain was made, and, to gain my ends, I have made a heavier sacrifice. It is true we were within seven degrees of the south, and if the Halbrane should indeed reach that spot, it would never cost me more than fourteen thousand dollars. Early in the morning of the twenty-seventh of December, the Halbrane put out to sea, heading southwest. After the scene of the preceding evening, Captain Len Guy had taken a few hours' rest. I met him the next day on deck, while West was going about fore and aft, and he called us both to him. "'Mr. Jorling,' he said, "'it was with a terrible pang that I came to the resolution to bring our schooner back to the north. I felt I had not done all I ought to do for our unhappy fellow-countrymen, but I knew that the majority of the crew would be against me if I insisted on going beyond Salal Island. That is true, Captain. There was a beginning of indiscipline on board, and perhaps it might have ended in a revolt. A revolt we should have speedily put down, said West coolly, were it only by knocking Heron, who is always exciting the mutinous men on the head. And you would have done well, Jem, said the Captain, only justice being satisfied. What would have become of the agreement together, which we must have in order to do anything? Of course, Captain, it is better that things passed off without violence. But for the future, Hearn will have to look out for himself. His companions, observed the Captain, are now greedy for the prizes that have been promised them. The greed of gain will make them more willing and persevering. The generosity of Mr. Jorling, has succeeded where our entreaties would undoubtedly have failed. I thank him for it. Captain Len Guy held out a hand to me, which I grasped cordially. After some general conversation relating to our purpose, the ship's course, and the proposed verification of the bearings of the group of islands on the west of Salal, which is described by Arthur Pym, the captain said, As it is possible that the ravages of the earthquake did not extend to this group, and that it may still be inhabited, we must be on our guard in approaching the bearings, which cannot be far off, I added. And then, Captain, who knows but that your brother and his sailors might have taken refuge on one of these islands? This was admissible, but not a consoling eventuality, for in that case the poor fellows would have fallen into the hands of those savages of whom they were rid while they remained at Salal. Jem, resumed Captain Len Guy, we are making good way, and no doubt land will be signalled in a few hours. Give orders for the watch to be careful. It's done, Captain. There's a man in the crow's nest. Dirk Peters himself, at his own request. All right, Jem, we may trust his vigilance. And also his eyes, I added, for he is gifted with amazing sight. For two hours of quick sailing, 
not the smallest indication of the group of eight islands was visible. "'It is incomprehensible that we could not come in sight of them,' said the captain. "'I reckon that the Halbrane has made sixty miles since this morning, and the islands in question are tolerably close together.' "'Then, captain, we must conclude, and it is not unlikely, that the group to which Salel belonged has entirely disappeared in the earthquake.' "'Land ahead!' cried Dirk Peters. We looked, but could discern nothing on the sea, nor was it until a quarter of an hour had elapsed that our glasses enabled us to recognize the tops of a few scattered islets shining in the oblique rays of the sun, two or three miles to the westward. What a change! How had it come about? Arthur Pym described spacious islands, but only a small number of tiny islets, half a dozen at most, protruded from the waters. At this moment the half-breed came sliding down from his lofty perch, and jumped to the deck. "'Well, Dirk Peters, have you recognized the group?' asked the captain. "'The group?' replied the half-breed, shaking his head. "'No, I have only seen the tops of five or six islets. There is nothing but stone heaps there, not a single island.' As the schooner approached, we easily recognized these fragments of the group, which had been almost entirely destroyed on its western side. The scattered remains formed dangerous reefs, which might seriously injure the keel or the sides of the halbrane, and there was no intention of risking the ship's safety among them. We accordingly cast anchor at a safe distance, and a boat was lowered for the reception of Captain Len Guy, the boatswain, Dirk Peters, Holt, two men and myself. The still, transparent water, as Peters steered us skilfully between the projecting edges of the little reefs, allowed us to see not a bed of sand strewn with shells, but heaps which were overgrown by land vegetation, tufts, plants not belonging to the marine flora that floated on the surface of the sea. Presently we landed on one of the larger islets, which rose to about thirty feet above the sea. Do the tides rise sometimes to that height? I inquired of the captain. Never, he replied, and perhaps we shall discover some remains of the vegetable kingdom, of habitations, or of an encampment. The best thing that we can do, said the boatswain, is to follow Dirk Peters, who has already distanced us. The half-breed's lynx's eyes will see what we can't. Peters had indeed scaled the eminence in a moment, and we presently joined him on the top. The islet was strewn with the remains, probably of those domestic animals mentioned in Arthur Pym's journal, but these bones differed from the bones on Salel Island by the fact that the heaps dated from a few months only. This, then, agreed with the recent period at which we placed the earthquake. Besides, plants and tufts of flowers were growing here and there. "'And these are this year's,' I cried. "'No southern winter has passed over them.' These facts having been ascertained, no doubt could remain respecting the date of the cataclysm after the departure of Patterson. The destruction of the population of Salal, whose bones lay about the village, was not attributable to that catastrophe. William Guy and the five sailors of the Jane had been able to fly in time, since no bones that could be theirs had been found on the island. Where had they taken refuge? This was the ever-pressing question. What answer were we to obtain? Must we conclude that, having reached one of these islets, 
they had perished in the swallowing up of the archipelago we debated this point as may be supposed at a length and with detail which i can only indicate here suffice it to say that a decision was arrived at to the following effect our sole chance of discovering the unfortunate castaways was to continue our voyage for two or three parallels further the goal was there and which of us would not sacrifice even his life to attain it god is guiding us mr jorling said captain len guy end of chapter seventeen part two What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.